Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Craig, this one is going to go down in history as our tribute episode to Wilford Brimley. Wilford Brimley died on August 1st this year, and we're very sad to see his passing. He is a very notorious actor, known for a number of roles. He has about 77, actually exactly, 77 screen credits to his name on imdb.com. I think it really just depends <laughs> depends on the generation you're in, what you know him from. He actually got started in acting a little later in life. He picked up some speed in the 80s, but he was actually born in the 30s. He was like in his late 40s, early 50s when he started acting, but he ended up getting a ton of roles. I remember him the most from Cocoon. And then he was in movies and in TV shows and stuff throughout the 80s. He was in commercials and stuff, I think, for hemorrhoids and stuff like that. Diabetes. Diabetes. <laughs> But actually, quite a good actor, and uh, he was also in the movie that we're doing this week, which is The Thing, from 1982, by John Carpenter, which itself is a remake of an earlier film by Howard Hawks, and then, of course, later on uh, was redone, I think, a little closer to now. But I freaking love this movie, and I loved it when I first saw it. It is a special effects extravaganza. It's a John Carpenter picture that didn't get as much love when it came out as it does now. Uh, he's definitely gotten the credit lately that he deserves for this film. So I'm really excited to talk about the thing and to look for this excuse to talk about Wilford Brimley, who, you know, a lot of movies, when we, when we do these tribute episodes, we're looking for a horror film where a person has ends up having kind of a minor role in it. <laughs> like in like in Christine, which we did recently. But here we are. Wilford Brimley actually has a pivotal role in this John Carpenter film. So it's it's good to be able to use this film as a vehicle to talk about him and talk about his career. Wilford Brimley is just the kind of guy who is just I don't know, kind of been on the cultural radar my whole lifetime, it seems like, because he had diabetes and uh, was a spokesperson. They're still running his commercials for diabetes awareness, but I remembered him, I guess, from this, and then he also did <laughs> Back to My Days of Our Lives Connections. He did a TV show with Deidre Hall called our house or something like that yeah and our house is a very 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 fine house <laughs> <laughs> a little tiny baby shannon doherty i think was in that show too and so i've just always kind of been aware of who he was but just kind of reading up on him today you know like you said he got uh started kind of late and he talked about in interviews how he never got to play the leading man he always he said that he started playing the role of the father to people who were 25 years his junior <laughs> right from the beginning uh, of his career and he kind of got stuck in that he was by far i think i think he was 49 when he filmed uh cocoon and he was at least two decades younger than any of the other people who played senior citizens in that movie <laughs> and so he was just kind of typecast in that way um he was cast in the thing because Carpenter wanted a non-threatening everyman. Spoiler alert, he ends up being one of the central antagonists. I, I, arguably, I guess, the big bad uh, in this movie. And I, I found out just minutes before you and I got online together that he, Brimley hates this movie. <laughs> really? <laughs> or hated, yeah, hated this movie. Are you um, kidding me? He said, wow. he said from the time Carpenter yelled action, he knew he was in trouble. And uh, oh <laughs> he did not think, he thought it was garbage. He thought it was a trash movie. <laughs> that is so interesting. Well, this movie didn't get a lot of love when Carpenter put it out there. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it was just a sort of a modest success at best at the box office. It was almost critically panned. And in retrospect, it's revered. This movie is, and I mean, I think I'm just going to say nothing but nice things about this movie. It, I think it's fantastic. And I haven't seen the original, the thing from Another World or whatever it is that, and Carpenter was a huge fan, apparently, of 
the original film and watched it. A du- uh, he watched it a lot, even in preparation for his breakout film in Halloween. That's how influential this movie was and how important this movie was to him. So I think he was very disappointed when this movie came out to not so great critical acclaim. And even one of my, I mean, I'm a serious fanboy of Roger Ebert and I think I've said it before on this on this podcast how much I love him. I went back and I watched his contemporary review of this movie. He gave it two and a half stars. He wasn't terribly uh, kind to it, but in retrospect, years later, he revised his opinion and said that this is one of the all-time great sci-fi movies of 1982. I just love it. I, I've always enjoyed this movie. I don't honestly don't see what anyone would see wrong with this film. It's got a little bit of everything. It has a lot of suspense. It has a lot of tension. Well, God, it has a ton of characters. And the special effects might be... The special effects are the thing that Carpenter... Because Carpenter was such a fan of the original, he originally was not terribly keen on doing this film. This went through a ton of directors and a ton of screenwriters before it finally landed on his plate, and he finally agreed to do it, and everybody got on board. This was a thing that was a couple decades in the making, this remake, and a lot of people were reluctant to join on board, but the thing that Carpenter, that kind of cemented Carpenter's interest in this was the idea that he could add a little bit of realism, add a little bit of effects to it, and centralize a little bit more the focus on the thing, and get... I don't know, a little more exploitative about it, to be honest. You know, just get a little gorier, get a little more you know, update, up to date about the, the, the monster. Make it a little bit more of a monster movie, which he did. And that was kind of ended up being what he got creamed on. People said uh, it's just a little, it's kind of a gory special effects extravaganza and doesn't have a lot of heart. But I think nowadays, because we're used to gory special effects extravaganzas, this doesn't look like such an extravaganza. And therefore, the crux of the film, the plot, the idea that there's this monster here and nobody knows what it is, it's kind of an invasion of the body snatchers type thing, that tension maybe floats a little bit more to the top. And so I think maybe a more modern audience appreciates this a little bit more than the audience that came out. That's the only explanation I can come up with with why this wasn't as critically revered then as it is now. Yeah, I don't know either. It is gory. Um and all the effects, well, I think at least the vast majority of the effects uh, are practical, and they look fantastic. But yeah, like you said, it was the critics just felt like it was an excuse for gore that he was a bloodhound kind of guy, and it was put on the video nasties list in the UK, and it just didn't go over very well, and. It may be because it was a different type, you know, uh, with Halloween and Friday the 13th, slashers were becoming really popular, and so I think maybe some people were anticipating something more along those lines, and it was even, uh, Carpenter was really disappointed with the, the poster design, because it was kind of disconnected from his vision of the movie, and he felt like it made it look like a slasher, and so people were... Uh, maybe anticipating that. It does have the interesting backstory of, you know, going through all these different people. Uh, Toby Hooper was, at least before Carpenter stepped in, that was who was going to be doing the project, and he had envisioned it in a totally different way. In fact, he had wanted to kind of make it a dark comedy. <laughs> but uh, the studio rejected that, and so they ended up going with Carpenter because of his success with Halloween. They wanted to also, in the marketing, uh, highlight the fact that this was an alien movie. They they used the word alien in one of the taglines because of the success of Ridley Scott's Alien. And so maybe there were just too many, you know, people didn't know what to expect, and then it was very different than anything else that we had kind of seen coming out at the time. It really is kind of more of a throwback to those uh, sci-fi movies of the 50s and 60s, but, you know, amped up a lot in in terms of gore. Who knows? When it comes down to it, uh, I agree with you. I think it's a solid movie. I think I'm a little bit nervous in talking about it because it's such a large cast of characters, uh, and so (laughs) it, it sometimes gets 
hard to keep up with who everybody is. Um, but that being said, it's a really strong ensemble. Yeah. I think the performances are, are really solid and it's got that isolated, um, kind of claustrophobic feel because it takes place primarily all in one pretty confined space. Plus it takes place in Antarctica. So it's entirely desolate, um, which is great for atmosphere and and suspense and building dread and and the story really is is pretty simple you know it's a a bunch of american guys at some outpost in antarctica we don't really have any indication of what they're doing there like (laughs) (laughs) i do wonder i I, I do wonder what you do at this research station in antarctica or what they're doing in in particular I have no idea. And, you know, like why they have an arsenal, including flamethrowers, like (laughs) what kind of dangers were they anticipating that they might need flamethrowers? I'm not sure. It is the Arctic and it's all ice and snow. So, I mean, the that's you know, you got to have a flamethrower to counteract. I don't know the ice and snow. (laughs) <laughs> Good question, actually. <laughs> but anyway, they're, they're all there for unknown reasons. And my gosh, one of my favorite parts of the movie is the opening scene. You get the title, which is pretty cool in itself. Oh, actually, even before the title, isn't there, is the spaceship, is that the first yeah, thing you see? Yeah, there's a spaceship flying through space near, you know, over Earth, and then it kind of I don't know. I guess it burns up into the atmosphere. You get the sense that it lands, something like that. It's smart. It, I mean, it starts out in that interesting sci-fi 50s way, right, where it just shows a spaceship coming to Earth. There's no more explanation. And then the score comes up, and then the thing title comes out to a pretty good score. Actually, um, Ennio Morricone had some involvement in the score with this. Uh, uh, John Carpenter really wanted him to do the score, and John Carpenter's pretty famous for doing his own scores for his films. And he would use, I mean, he, his father's a very accomplished musician. He has a very musical background, but he was doing synthesizers. And I've, I've watched some interviews with Carpenter who said that honestly, the whole reason he ended up doing scores for his films was purely economical. It was just kind of made sense with the lower budgets he started out working with that he would just kind of end up scoring the movie himself and uh, so he'd bring in some synths and he'd do it. And, and you know, we get Halloween. We get some very iconic scores from him. I think, actually, he's pretty good at doing, mm-hmm. at, at, at giving the movie the kind of music it needs. But for this movie, he really wanted Ennio Morricone to do some scoring for him. So he asked him to do it. He flew to Italy and he got about, I, I, I don't know, it's like 20 minutes to an hour's worth of music from Ennio. And then came back, and I mean, if you read online and do some research, apparently he manipulated it quite a bit. He added his own, his own synth stuff to it. And so even though the title card comes out, music by Ennio Morricone, the reality is that John Carpenter's thumbprint is at least as prevalent on the score of this movie as Ennio's is. But he'd end up doing some music that was very atypical of him. He was intentionally trying to match John Carpenter's style from his earlier films. So uh, you get a nice score. And I, I, I thought actually the movie started out quite well with that. You get the spaceship by Earth, and then you get this cool title, The Thing, and you get this swooping score that's a little bit orchestral and sort of half synth as well. And so uh, it's different. And, and actually, there's not a ton of music throughout the whole movie. Uh, there's really mm-hmm. small parts, pointed parts where there is music. Otherwise, I think smartly so really you know john carpenter chose to not score (laughs) certain very tense moments of the film so uh you know we had talked about doing this movie as a tribute to ennio morricone and our tribute to ennio morricone who also died this year is coming up soon but at the end of the day i think uh we decided that because of the history of this film and that his score has maybe been manipulated considerably that uh, we would be better off choosing another film for that. So, anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. Anyway, yeah, you're right. The movie starts with a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was just going to add that, like the movie, uh, at the time, the score was also critically panned. In fact, it was nominated for a Razzie. It didn't win. Crazy, right? But, uh, again, just like the film, it's, it's kind of become a cult 
classic uh, of scores. Uh, and it's interesting because it's, it's very subtle and it just makes use of very simple kind of bass notes. And uh, I, I think a lot of our listeners even if they can't think of it off the top of their heads, if they heard it, they would recognize it. It's a recognizable uh, score, mm. in, in part because it is so simple. But I had really even forgotten about that whole spaceship thing. What I remembered was the opening scene where you just see kind of this Arctic landscape, and this helicopter comes up over a mountain range and swoops down um, towards the ground, and you see that they are chasing a dog. And it's I don't know, probably a minute long scene of this helicopter following this dog and the dog looking back over its shoulder, seeing where the helicopter is and kind of maneuvering uh, away from it. And eventually the dog runs into this camp of these American guys, all of them men, by the way, uh, which also makes the film kind of unique. There's mm. nary, there's, there's n- not a woman in the entire movie. <laughs> Originally, uh, uh, there was a female character, but the actress who was going to be playing her had to drop out for some reason. They replaced her with a guy. So it's a, an entirely male cast. But the dog runs into this camp. And the people in the camp hear gunfire because the helicopter is shooting at this dog. And so they run out to see what's going on. And the dog runs up and approaches them in a very friendly fashion. It jumps up on one of them. The the actor who it jumps up on, uh, I guess, was terrified of dogs and really struggled with that scene. Uh, <laughs> which is kind of surprising because I have to say, I think, and this is sarcastic, but the dog is the best actor in the movie. <laughs> That's really not true, but this may be the best animal actor I've ever seen. Mm. Because as it turns out, this dog is not really a dog. Uh, it is some sort of shape-shifting, parasitic life form that can infect and basically replicate any living organism and in doing so, it kills the original organism, but it becomes an exact replica of that organism. So this Norwegian helicopter has two guys in it, and they land, and one of them starts screaming at the guys in Norwegian. Of course, they can't understand. The, the Norwegian actually translates to, get away from it, it's not a dog, it's some kind of thing, the Norwegian guy actually fires at the dog and hits one of the guys uh, in the leg. And then also, and this is kind of stupid, he goes to throw a grenade at the dog, but he (laughs) ends up accidentally dropping it right behind him. (laughs) So it blows up the helicopter, killing the other guy in the helicopter. And then once the guy with the gun shoots one of the Americans in the leg, one of the other Americans shoots him dead. So they have no idea who these people are. I mean, they know that there was a Norwegian outpost, but they don't know why they were here. And they don't really – there doesn't seem to be any suspicion about the dog at all. So they just let the dog kind of wander around. And honestly, I don't know how the trainer did this or if it was just the nature of this dog. But the dog seems so – aware like it's slow in its movement it looks like it's observing them it looks like it's snooping around it seems to have much more intense awareness than your typical dog they don't notice it but as a viewer i was just like dang that is (laughs) that dog is nailing this (laughs) you're you're 100 right about that that dog uh, and I was impressed. I was impressed with these scenes. And the thing that I really like about this movie is it jumps right into the action. And mm-hmm. I don't think this was something, of course, this went through a dozen, uh, like a, like about a dozen scripts. And they were even working on it, John Carpenter and, and uh, you know, the final screenwriters that were given credit for this all the way up to the end. But one thing that um, that they did right here was to jump us right into the middle of the action where this happens and this dog comes onto camp. And like you said, there are these scenes of the dog just wandering around. And, and like you said, it's not just the dog wandering around, but it seems to have some intelligence about it. It seems to be snooping a bit. It seems to be observing. 
And from the beginning, you understand there's something wrong with this dog. Like, mm-hmm. this dog is not... I mean, obviously, this guy was chasing it and trying to kill it, but people on this on this outpost should be worried about this dog, and they've completely let it go because they're a little more concerned about the mystery of why this helicopter from Nor- the Norwegian outpost, apparently, came in. And unfortunately, they shoot him dead because he tries to shoot the dog and instead ends up shooting the leg of one of the guys. And then uh, Gary, kind of called the captain or whatever, ends up shooting him in response and killing him. So nobody really knows what's what's going on. And so they decide to go out and check out the Norwegian camp. And so McCready, who is Kurt Russell's character, ends up going out along with... Um, I don't know. He, there are it's, uh, one one of the doctors. That's the thing. There are so many guys. Yeah, there are like yeah. twelve people at this camp, which makes sense. I mean, if you're going to have an out a research outpost in the Arctic, you're going to have a lot of people. But for a film and trying to keep track of everybody, well, for a podcast, you know, you got you got to write a lot of names down. Exactly, it's not hard to keep track of everybody as far as watching the movie goes and seeing what happens. It's it's actually quite simple. But he ends up going out to check out and investigate this Norwegian camp, and when they get there they find out it's completely burned out and there's a weird corpse an odd amalgamation of like two humans and it's a mess it's an odd corpse that they bring back to the camp but what they also find is a big block of ice it's obviously been excavated from the arctic ice block or whatever and it's clear that these people have found something in the ice excavated it and then sometime later decided to burn out their whole camp and they're shooting this dog and there's this weird ass. And, and they find one guy that had committed suicide by slitting his wrist, which was really kind of a cool image yeah. because in these freezing conditions, the blood had frozen as it was dripping out. Oh, yeah. And I, gosh, it seemed really stupid that they would take that weird thing back. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that I would have wanted to touch that thing because they can't tell what it is, but it, it ha- has definite human attributes, but they are horribly, horribly disfigured. It's a mess. And there's what appears to be kind of like a head, but it kind of appears to be split as though it were two faces being either pulled apart or converging. Um, and you see some teeth there and it's got some hands, but like the fingers are abnormally long and <laughs> other appendages, but they're just all not right. You know, they're just all, it's wrong. <laughs> like, it, it looks like an abomination. Therefore, I wouldn't have wanted to have anything to do with no. it. No. Were you thinking of the shunting from society? <laughs> it was just, totally, yes, it was totally that. I mean, it was just a mass of, of, of human weirdness. And it was brought back to the camp. They bring it back to the camp. They don't know what to do with it. And honestly, like this part of the movie, I kind of get. I mean, these guys are just WTF the whole time. And that part of it I really liked. You know, nobody really knows what to make of what they're finding. And the key element here is that they have no communication back to anybody else. It's established pretty early on. Uh, that their radio guy, uh, Windows, is unable to to make any contact via radio with any of their other camps or, you know, with base or whatever like that. So they're pretty much on their own, and winter is coming. So it's a, an especially harsh time in a day or two. They're, they're expecting lots of storms, and they're completely isolated and disconnected. So they bring this thing back, and it's it's established quite well in the film that they're all going to be pretty much on their own that they're going to have to deal with whatever they find. And I I thought that was smart, too. I mean, I think the movie, in general, is very smartly written. You know, it establishes very quickly the stakes. It establishes some mystery uh, and the sense of isolation from all these people, so they're going to have to deal with it themselves. And then also, it very quickly, I think, sort of establishes all the characters as best as it can. All 12 people in this camp. You've got Wilford Brimley, who's, I guess, a scientist. You've got the Doc, who they call Doc. And he's the doctor. And then the only person, uh, you know, that they don't really... Oh, you've got like a stoner guy, (laughs) you know, who's every single scene lighting up a doobie, which I thought was hilarious. You have Childs, who's played uh, by an actor that uh, everybody would 
would well recognize. By Keith David. He's notable for being one of the few black actors in, at this time who actually survives a horror film. <laughs> and he's mm-hmm. quite proud of that fact. Arguably. Yeah, he's quite proud of that fact. But then, you know, you get this, this character of uh, McCready, who I thought it's cute when you finally kind of see how his name is spelled out. It's like McReady which is nice, but it's Kurt Russell. And uh, in the beginning of the film, you're not quite sure what role he plays in this. It's not till about midway through that you realize he's just a freaking helicopter pirate pilot. You know, he's, he's nobody special. He's not the leader. He's not anything. He just pilots the helicopter. He drinks whiskey the whole time, but he ends up being the guy with at least enough sense or at least in the position to be able to, sort of become the leader in this movie. So, and and Kurt Russell is, even by this time, is is kind of a long time, becomes a long time John Carpenter staple. I think it was Escape from New York yeah. came out before this movie. But uh, yeah, so I mean, it's, it's neat how the film sets all this up in a relatively quick time frame. I liked that about the movie is that it wasn't slow, even though you've got 12 characters in the situation and it, captured my interest and it kept my interest throughout like you said there are a lot of characters and it's kind of hard for us to keep track of them and talking about them but they all just have distinct looks and distinct character traits so it's not as though you're confused as to who's who and all that kind of stuff and and most of these guys uh are guys that you if you are familiar with films and television of the 80s that you're going to recognize. Yeah. T.K. Carter as Nulls was in a lot of movies at that time. Keith David, like you said, very recognizable. Richard Mazur plays Clark, and he's the dog keeper. He's from tons of things, but we did uh, the It miniseries, mm-hmm. and he was adult Stanley in that. Like I said, they all hold their own. There really aren't any weak performances. But when when they get back to the camp, Dr. Blair, Wilford Brimley's character, uh, is tasked with doing an autopsy on this thing. And uh, the other doctor, I think, does the autopsy on the pilot that they shot. And the pilot that they shot, there was nothing you know, remarkable about him, just a regular dead guy. And But Wilford Brimley dissects this uh, thing and it's gross. Um, they used actual animal organs that he like pulls out of this creature. And I, I guess everybody else on set was just really squeamish about it. <laughs> Wilford Brimley didn't bother him at all, <laughs> handling all that gore and, and gross stuff. Well, what we got here is what appears to be, anyway, a normal set of internal organs. Heart. Lungs. Kidneys. Liver. Seem to be normal. It's just a mystery. They don't know what's going on. Uh, at some point, the dog, this new dog, startles one of the other guys, and so they tell Clark to put, not for any reason, just like it bumps into him or something, um, but they tell Clark to put it with the other dogs, and he does. He puts it in the kennel with the other dogs, and this is when, if you didn't know what was going on in the movie, <laughs> this is when it becomes clear, because this dog transforms in the kennel. Its face, like, opens up, and, like, an interior skull kind of protracts, and it starts growing all of these tentacles. It shoots some kind of ooze at one of the other dogs that seems to start to kind of, like, externally digest it, and the other dogs, of course, are freaking out, so everybody hears the dog's freaking out so they go running in there and they all see what happens yeah um no so question. they know they know yeah there's no question and uh, they shoot it and, and nothing it doesn't seem to phase it uh so they get the flamethrower and uh they seemingly kill it with uh the flamethrower and that's when blair starts doing some, I don't know if research is the right word, but starts trying to figure out what's going on. He, he figures it out seemingly right away. You see, what we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms, and it imitates them perfectly. When this thing attacked our dogs, it tried to digest them, absorb them, and in the process, shape its own cells to imitate them. This, for instance... That's not dog. It's imitation. We got to it before it had time to finish. Finish what? Finish imitating these dogs. 
and when he realizes that, he kind of looks at Clark and says, how long were you alone, were you alone with the dog? And Clark's like, I don't know, a while. Why? And he's like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> um, so it seems like, it seems like Blair figures out pretty quickly what, uh, can happen. And so they go back and they look at the footage from the Norwegian, uh, they had taken some, like a, they called it a portable video something, I don't know. Recorded. But anyway, it's some footage and they see footage of these Norwegian guys finding something in the ice. So McCready goes back to the site to check it out and there's a huge spaceship there. And I don't know how they figure this out, but one of the guys says, you know, that ice has probably been frozen there because it, the, the Norwegians had dug this spaceship out of the ice. And one of the American guys said, that ice has probably been there for a hundred thousand years. And, and then they, somewhere just a little bit distant from the crash site or the spaceship, they find the big square where they had dug the ice out. So they theorize that whatever this thing is, had either been thrown from the ship when it crashed or had left the ship and frozen nearby. And as it turns out, that's accurate. And by thawing it out, they have brought it back. And and then there's a really funny scene. Gosh, these movies, our computer technology <laughs> was not... <laughs> we gave computers a lot of credit back in the 80s. My yeah, God. <laughs> we liked to pretend that our technology was far more advanced than it was. But really, it looks like Blair is looking at this simulation... Um, which is supposed to show how the thing works. Its cells uh, infect the cells of other organisms, and then basically it, it, it destroys the cells and replicates, then imitates. Um, but the, the, it looks like he's playing like asteroids. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's really silly. And then the computer itself, a la the fly, can speak in full sentences and is like, probability of one of your crew members being infected is seventy five percent. Right, and then it says entire world population infected twenty seven thousand hours from the first contact, which would be about three years. So that freaks Blair out. Gosh, I don't know. There, yeah, there's a lot. The story is so simple, but like a lot happens. Basically, the thing they have, you know, they have that body or whatever. They're gonna store it in like the storage room. Again, doesn't seem like really a great idea. Like maybe freeze it again. <laughs> I mean, you are in Antarctica. You could just like put it outside. But of course, it comes back to life, and then it starts copying. The guys. Well, that's the interesting thing about this movie, and this is this is really the crux of the the original film, which was, itself was based on a short story. But the idea is that this thing can completely replicate someone. So we have a sort of invasion of the body snatcher scenario, and it becomes impossible for everybody on this twelve person crew to trust each other because they realize pretty quickly that any one of them could actually be the thing. And it's interesting in the movie, like maybe they don't even know or maybe they know, but they are continuing to act like they normally would. And so it really becomes this game. And it's an interesting juxtaposition. You have these moments where the thing is just a full out monster and somebody just, you know, their head like bursts open and then it becomes this crazy ass thing that's this DNA, you know, kind of nightmare but the other half of the movie and the thing that provides the most tension to the film is, okay, so we know maybe somebody's infected, so who is it? And who's going to trust who? And who's going to go off with who? And who won't go off with who? And, you know, it just slowly picks away at the people in the camp as they themselves can't really trust each other and are trying to figure out how can they figure out who is the thing and who's not. I mean, it's a neat premise. It's a really cool premise. It, it really goes far beyond this monster movie to this sort of psychological thriller territory. It is. And, and the way that they know all of this, like, they kind of figure it out from Blair's notes because Blair kind of goes missing for a little while. Uh, they can't find him. But they read in his notes uh, what he had already figured out, that it can replicate and that the, the thing that they had brought back was not dead yet. Um, and as soon as they figure that out, one of the guys gets 
attacked by the thing and, and it starts to assimilate into him and it, in mostly human form it runs outside of the outpost building and they chase it out and when they find it it's almost complete but not quite and so they kill it with fire too and they talk about how you know if if it had, if it had just had another minute or so, it would have been complete and we wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. Mm. And so that's how they know. And so at that point, they don't know. They think that maybe some of the rest of them already are uh, things. McCready is standing in front of all of them outside at one point, and he says, I know I'm human. And if you were all these things, then you'd just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. Meanwhile, Wilford Brimley's character, they catch him destroying the helicopter. And he had also, off camera, destroyed uh, a tractor or something. So they don't have any transportation. And then there's a big confrontation where he is in the radio room destroying all of the communication equipment. They eventually converge on him and lock him up in a shed. Um, and then that's when they start talking about how they're going to figure out who's who. And at first they have an idea that like, if they mix their blood with blood that they know is human, if the alien blood gets mixed with that, they should see some sort of reaction or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's Doc's... I didn't really quite understand. I think it's Doc's idea, and it's that they have blood of their own that they've stored away. Because this thing, every bit of it is alien, so there will be some kind of reaction, and so they will know that there is a problem. It's a little tenuous, but when they get to the blood supply, they see the blood supply has been destroyed. Somebody has actually gone and sabotaged the blood supply, and this is what turns them all against each other. Like, Gary had the key, but Doc, you know, is the one who normally accesses it, and so now they're they're worried, well, who would have come here and sabotaged it because they know that Blair has been locked away, and so they turn on each other really quickly, uh, and McCready ends up taking charge because Gary, who apparently was the guy in charge, is kind of like the captain, very nobly sort of lays his gun down and says, look, because of this whole situation, I understand you're not going to trust me. So somebody else needs to take charge. And McCready grabs the gun and decides to be the guy. And everybody more or less goes along with that. So they decide to morphine Doc and Clark, who was the guy who was with the dogs, and Gary. And Gary. And, and Blair had actually said to McCready, after McCready had, had locked up Blair, he said, look, watch Clark. Mm -hmm. Watch him closely because he was with those he you know, he was with those dogs from the beginning. He could be wrong. So that's why those three are under suspicion. At the same time, the storm is coming in. Uh, and they say nobody trusts anybody now. And McCready starts recording uh, a message. He records a tape saying, like, look, if, if, if anybody finds us and we're all dead, at least there's this for posterity. I want to I want to record this and I'm going to hide it. Creedy signing off helicopter pilot for the outpost. And that's the first time. And I think it's it's a telling moment, really, when we find out that he's at this point, he's actually just the helicopter pilot. I mean, up until this point, I felt like he had some level of importance at this facility. You know, I feel like. At least he has a certain agency that not a lot of other people have. And then when you realize he's just the helicopter pilot, that's that struck me a little bit like a like a, a ton of bricks. Uh, it was a nice touch, yeah. I thought, in the narrative that uh, that he that we realized that. But you know, he's also the typical American, like Clint Eastwood type antihero, right? He's swigging scotch. He seems to not give a crap about anything. He seems to be clever because in the beginning we saw him playing chess with the computer and uh, and he puts a cowboy hat on, you know, when he goes out and about. He's very much an archetype in this movie, but ends up becoming the hero, uh, has to come in, kind of be smarter than the doctor and like the experts and everybody else. Yeah. They considered Clint Eastwood for the role. I don't know if they even approached him with it, but he was somebody that they had in mind. But yeah, he's that kind of guy, just kind of the unlikely hero, I guess. Um, 
based solely on circumstance. At this point, there's some business, and it goes. It it, it never gets boring ever. No. I mean, it, the action moves, but in talking about it, I feel like it might get a little boring. So basically, all that happens is they do some investigating. A couple of other guys die for some reason. McCready and Nalls, um, who is the cook. Uh, end up checking out McCready's cabin or shed or whatever it is because the light is on when it shouldn't have been. And then Nulls comes back alone and he says, I, I cut the, the tow line or the guideline because I think that McCready is one of those things because in the, in the shed or cabin or whatever it is, Nulls had found uh, a suit of McCready's that was all shredded and they had already decided that person's clothing gets destroyed in the transformation and so they're convinced that McCready is one of these things but he comes back in like a badass with a flamethrower and a big thing of dynamite and basically threatens to blow them all up if they <laughs> attack him yeah. and it's very tense because you know there's still at this point I don't know several guys have died at this point plus um, Wilford Brimley's character is locked out in a shed somewhere so there's probably uh, seven or eight of them left at this point but plenty of them that did McCready not have the dynamite and the flamethrower in hand, they probably would have just dispatched him right away. Yeah. And you keep seeing these shots of people like concealing weapons kind of behind their back. So you know that he could face attack at any point. But that leads to probably one of the most recognizable scenes um, in the movie where Norris, who is a character that you barely even realize is there. Yeah. It's so weird, right? Like, it's like he's in there twice. <laughs> Where did this guy come from? He's he's a guy like me. He's kind of this kind of schlubby guy who kind of fades into the background, and then you're like, oh, I, I didn't realize you were here. <laughs> but he, like, he has a heart attack, seemingly, and the other doctor tries to use a defibrillator on him and he defibrillates him once and then when he goes to do it again the guy's chest Norris's chest opens up like a huge mouth <laughs> and bites off Copper's arms it's insane <laughs> it's in, this, it looks amazing it's so cool it, you're right this whole scene is notorious i call it the head crab scene because mm -hmm. as soon as he bites off his arms they go back and uh and mccready's got the flamethrower on his back this whole time it's a good thing he's got enough gas in this thing for this you know for as long as the movie goes but he blasts and they're so busy blasting the hell out of corpse that his head somehow extends off of his body and tears off and falls to the floor. And then out of his mouth, this sort of second tongue type appendage shoots out and, and, and grabs around like a desk or something and starts pulling it across the floor. It's like nobody notices this because this is all happening behind this corpse that's been flamethrowed. And they're all trying to deal with that. And <laughs> then this head suddenly sprouts legs like a like a spider and two eye stalks <laughs> and crawls around to this desk. And by the time they end up putting the flames out and kind of seeing what's going on, suddenly the spider head runs past them. And it's such a great moment in this movie where they all just like turn around and look at it. And their only reaction is just what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it's so I, I don't remember if it's at this point, but I one of the characters says something like, are you fucking kidding yeah. me? Or something along those lines. <laughs> uh, oh, and it's funny. It's hilarious. And of course they blast that and it burns up as well. So, uh, you know, Norris is out of the picture and so is his head crab. But I mean, we've said it before, but the effects in this movie are incredible are absolutely yeah they just look really cool yeah and they hold up today super cool there was a huge team working on this and the special effects guy the poor guy was only like 21 years old and he had just come off of doing effects for another film and they tried to get Rick Baker and some other more experienced people in here but uh, they were busy with other projects they pulled this guy in and the effects budget is what ballooned the budget on this movie originally universal was just going to spend like 200,000 on it and i think they ended up with 1.5 million 
going into the effects because they ended up with a huge crew, like 35 people doing the effects on this and all kinds of puppeteers. By the end of the movie, the creature required like 30 to 35 puppeteers just to get him, you know, going on, on camera. And I think it's well worth it. This is the thing that this is one of the really most notorious things about this movie is how great and in your face the creature effects are. And it's what really sets it apart from the first film, which was John Carpenter's intent. And again, like we said, it was the thing that brought the criticism in the beginning. But I think at the end of the day, it's it was a wise choice. You know, it was the thing that really uh, put this movie uh, ahead of the pack in terms of what could have been just sort of another invasion of the Body Snatchers film and elevated it just a little bit to incorporate a little bit of that creature monster element to it. Yeah, Rob Botton is the name of the guy who did the effects, and he at one point was living on set and was working around the clock to the point where he literally worked himself into exhaustion and not just, you know, being tired. Like he was medically diagnosed with exhaustion. And so uh, Stan Winston stepped in to do some of the effects. I think Stan Winston ended up doing the dog thing. Mm. Rob Botton had previously worked on a werewolf movie or something like that, I think. And he said he was glad that Stan Winston was willing to do the dog effects because he was sick to death of working on dog effects (laughs) and so uh, Stan Winston actually did work on some of the effects and he just gets kind of a brief mention in the end credits but yeah he insisted that he didn't get you know credited he said really Rob Barton does Rob Botton deserves all the credit and and I think he also worked with John Carpenter on the fog before this Rob Barton Rob Botton did gotcha well, and somewhere in that whole melee Clark had tried to attack McCready Clark had been acting shady for, I, I thought he was one of the things. Yeah. But he ends up, because he tries to attack McCready, McCready um, shoots him, and so he's dead. But McCready says something like, the whole thing with Norris and seeing how Norris died and seeing how the head uh, separated itself and tried to escape, he says, I think that this thing, every little piece of it is its own animal. And so, like, just like the head tore itself away to try to protect itself, he gets the idea that if they do something to try to hurt any part of a thing, that it will react. And so his idea is to draw blood from all of them and then use a hot needle to see if the blood will react in any way. And it's really smart. I don't know if I would have thought about it. Uh, I guess, you know, this is taken directly from the original short story. And so they do this. Everybody bleeds into Petri dishes. And it's a great scene that builds tension because every time he does it, I mean, I'm on the edge of my seat. Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? So they do windows first. Nothing happens. They do uh, McCready's blood. Nothing happens. Uh, they do the two dead guys, Copper, nothing, Clark, nothing. Uh, Gary says something like, this is a bunch of bullshit. McCready's like, yeah, I figured you'd say that. We'll do you last. And so then he goes to do Palmer. But because they have just in that split second before made Gary a red herring, you don't expect in that second when he does Palmer's blood for it to react and it does react the blood like jumps up out of the petri dish and it's such a great scare because I feel like they do such an excellent job of setting it up so you're waiting for it to happen but then you think just in that moment oh it's not going to be this one it's going to be Gary (laughs) and then it pops out Uh, it was awesome it's a great effect and it's like you said it's a perfectly timed scare and this is the part of the movie that I remember the most Honestly, more than the head crab scene was this jump scare because it's like this thing just jumps out of the blood. It's like the blood itself becomes a thing and and springs out of his hand in this Petri dish. It's so cool. And then you realize it's it's uh, it's it's him. And so Palmer himself starts fr- like convulsing, like like he's been discovered. So like, you know, he starts convulsing and the thing starts oozing out of him. He starts kind of melting. It's super gross. They take care of him. Not before he kind of like eats windows. 
Oh, God. Like, his head becomes a mouth. Yeah. And he doesn't eat him. Really, what he's doing is he's trying to assimilate with him, too, which he starts to do, but then they torch him, too. This, I guess, was an unintentional metaphor, I guess, for... The AIDS crisis. Now, like I said, this blood test was written into the original short story, which was, you know, decades before the AIDS crisis. But that idea of people being infected and you don't know who is carrying this infection and who isn't and that you can only find out through a blood test. It wasn't intended to be a metaphor for the AIDS crisis, but it's not as though he was unaware of it. Right. He, he knew that people might read that into it, and it actually serves well. You know, like, it it makes a lot of sense uh, in that context, and sadly, um, it's somewhat timely for us today. Yeah, and he, I mean, why is it that lately we've just been dealing with all these movies that take deal with infections and things spreading with people? Yeah. God. Yeah, but but at least this scene leads to my absolute favorite line in the whole movie, which, you know, all these people, you know, several of them have been tied up because they're under extra suspicion, like Childs and Gary and whatnot. And being tied up, obviously, in this circumstance, when somebody who's tied right next to you turns into the thing, uh, is a bit of a liability for you. And, and by the time all this is done, Gary looks at them and they test Gary and Gary's fine, and he looks at them and he says the best line in the whole movie. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot. And when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. Oh, it's dude. Great. But anyway, so they test all the rest of them that are there. Nalls, Childs, and Gary, and they're all fine. So seemingly... The ones of them that are left there, which I think at this point is McCready, Nalls, Childs, and Gary, they're all fine. So they go to test Blair, but when they go to the shed that they had him locked in, he's gone. And they find a tunnel under the floor, and you know Blair, who is an older gentleman and, you know, also, you know, a portly gentleman, there's no way that he dug this huge tunnel under there. So <laughs> he's got to be a thing. So they go into the tunnel... And they see that he's been building, like, a spaceship down there. And uh, somebody says, where was he wanting to go? And somebody else says, anywhere but here. Because they know that this thing wants to get out of this isolated space so that it can continue to spread, I guess. At some point, the power gets cut. And I think it's McCready says, with the generator not running, with the heaters not running, it's going to be, like, negative 40 here in any time and we're all going to freeze to death they say you know why why would the thing want that and mccready says it wants to freeze now um, it can't get out of here on its own so it wants to just go to sleep until a rescue team comes and finds it and takes it somewhere else mm. and at that point he also says to the rest of them we're not getting out of here alive but neither is that thing. So they they blow up Blair's shed, and their plan, I guess, is to blow up the whole camp. I don't know if they're checking on the generator or they're planning on turning it back on or they're going to blow it up. I don't know, but they find that it's gone, and then they're off. They kind of split up, setting uh, explosives in different places. Blair pops up behind Gary and puts his hands into Gary's face and so we assume that Gary is either assimilated or killed, or both. And then Nalls goes down a corridor inspecting some sort of noise, and he just disappears and we never see him again. Yeah. Now, I guess there was a deleted scene that showed him getting attacked by Blair, too. And it was an effect scene where the thing would burst out of a box, like burst out of a crate and attack Nalls and assimilate him as well. But Carpenter ended up not liking the way that it looked. So he decided to just leave Nalls' death um, ambiguous. But at that point, a huge thing comes under the floorboards, uh, tremor style, throws McCready off to the side, bursts out of the floor, and it's this huge, like, amalgamation of dogs and 
people and Blair's face is a part of it, but it's just this big monstrous thing. And of course, you know, it may not look as clean as some of our effects today look, but I've said it a bazillion times, I much prefer a practical effect yeah. that at least really looks tangible. Yeah. It looks like something that you could reach out and touch. It doesn't look like something in a video game. And uh, so I think it looks great, but Mac blows it up <laughs> pretty unceremoniously, really. Yeah. And that's kind of the end. Like, he blows up the whole outpost, uh, and then he's just sitting there kind of in the rubble, and then Childs walks up to him, and he claims that he saw Blair wandering around, so he went out looking for him, and he got lost in the storm and has just found his way back because of the explosion. And the two of them sit there, and they kind of talk about, like... How do we know if we're both human? And Max says something like, well, if either of us has any surprises, I don't think any of us are in, e in the condition to do anything about it. And so they say, well, so then what are we going to do? And McCready says, well, let's just sit here a while and see what happens. Cut to black. Yeah, that's the end of the movie. <laughs> and that's the end. I, it, it's appropriate. I mean, this movie went through a number of endings. They shot some endings. This Everybody had an opinion about what, this, what the endings of this film should be. You know, John Carpenter had this kind of nihilistic ending, and the studio thought it should be a little more upbeat. They should thought they should show, you know, them kind of getting the better of the thing once and for all. But I think it's really appropriate. And again, sadly, a commentary on today, like at this point, like what can you do about this? Like this is like Pandora's box has been opened and this thing can infect any of us. We really don't know who it is. And the movie ends us wondering if either Childs or McCready or both of them are infected. And we're just sort of left to hope that maybe at the end of the day, whatever it is, is contained there in the Arctic with their deaths. We know they're going to die, we presume. Right. Or but, are they going to freeze to death and there's going to be a thing that comes back later, you know? Right. That's the thing. If one of them is a thing, if they freeze, that we know doesn't kill it. So it could just be in suspended animation until somebody comes along and finds it, which in theory somebody eventually would. Carpenter has flip-flopped on this. You know, he allowed the, the film to be licensed for a video game, and in the video game, both guys are rescued, and neither one is a thing, and he has said, that's canon with the movie. But then he's also said in other interviews that one of them definitely is a thing. Um, so he's gone back and forth on it. There are other theories in the... 2000, I don't remember if it was 2013, 2017, somewhere, I think 2013, uh, the, they made a prequel, and in the prequel, it's established that when the thing assimilates and replicates uh, a, an organism, it does not replicate any external non-organic materials. So let's say you had a pacemaker. It wouldn't replicate that. Piercings, it wouldn't replicate. And in that last scene, Childs still has his earring. So some fans mm. think it, he can't be because it wouldn't be there. Um, but we don't know anything uh, about McCready. But I like the ending because it seems appropriately nihilistic. You know, yeah. that I, I, I didn't want anybody to be rescued and that was something they considered to have at least mccready be rescued in the end and fly off you know be flown off in a helicopter i think it's much more in keeping with the tone of the movie that we can hope that the threat has been destroyed but we don't have hope for these remaining people <laughs> yeah. and and i think it's it's uh appropriate and again ultimately it's it's a dark film as long as we've talked about it really the plot is very simple it's just <laughs> so many times we talk about movies and we say well the plot's pretty simple just not a lot happens well the plot here is very simple but a lot does happen yeah um and it keeps you on your toes and it keeps you interested and it, you know at an hour and 50 minutes um that's pushing my attention span but it does not, it feels short. It feels it like does. a short movie because it goes so fast. You're right. 
And and I think it's a shame. You know, I, I uh, I'm going to quote John Carpenter, who was um, quoted in 2008. He was talking about how this movie was received, and he said, "quote I take every failure hard. The one I took the hardest was The Thing. My career would have been different if that one had been a big hit. The movie was hated." even by science fiction fans. They thought that I had betrayed some kind of trust, and the piling on was insane. Even the original movie's director, Christian Nyby, was dissing me. It's so hard to believe that now, you know, I think. Yeah. I mean, the movie is great. I I love it, and I think it's tense, and it's got special effects, and they're done well, and they hold up today. The ending is very appropriate. Like you said, it doesn't cop out. It never gets cheesy. And the acting is great. It's a great ensemble cast. I can't really find a fault with this movie. So uh, I love it. And I, and I think uh, Wilford Brimley, of course, uh, his, his part in it is big. And he yeah. does a fine and job. And we didn't talk about him. We didn't talk about him a whole lot just because things move so quickly. But he does a really good job in this movie. And he did a good job, I thought. And, and I, this is the writing, too. I, at points I suspected that he was a thing and, and at sometimes I didn't. I thought surely he can't be when he was destroying all the communication stuff and destroying the transportation stuff. Like that doesn't make sense. A thing would want to get out. But then later when, uh, McCready is talking to him through the window of his little shed and he's like, I'm fine now. I'm okay. I calmed down. I just went out. Please just let me out. Then I started to think, kind of shady so he had good nuances of character and he played it well so i think despite the fact that he didn't like the movie i thought that he did a great job in it and i thought that he was casted really well because he doesn't seem like a threatening presence it it just works You, you take somebody who seems grandfatherly and innocuous and and then he ends up being the big bad uh it just it it really worked for me and i'm glad that we chose to do this uh wilford brimley it's not like he's somebody that i've admired my whole life or anything but like i said he's just always my entire life been on my cultural radar you just you know who this guy is you know his voice you associate things with him um, and so I think it's fitting that we at least pay a little bit of respect. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us online. You can find our Facebook page or our website, twoguys.red40net.com. Please leave a message there, anywhere you find us, really. And uh, let us know what you thought of this movie. Give us some suggestions for films coming up as well. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys in a Chainsaw. Chainsaw.